Well, on a bitterly cold, snowy day in January 1972, my mother stepped off a 20-hour flight that landed in John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York City. She had exactly $8 in her wallet. She had left behind my dad and my older sister, who was four at the time, and she, she left them back in India, and she had taken the first international trip of her life. She was sad at the thought of leaving her family, anxious, wondering what life would be like in the U.S. And she arrived without a coat, wearing a thin sari and sandals in the middle of winter in New York City. My mom uh, immigrated to the U.S. because she was a nurse, and during the 70s, there was a nursing shortage here. And so my parents thought that coming to America would mean a better future for their family, especially for their children. But my mom had no idea, no clue what life would be like in the U.S., especially in New York City. But she somehow figured out the subway system, she figured out how to get around, she got herself a job and an apartment, and a year later, my dad and my sister arrived. To say that my parents have lived the American dream would be an understatement. See, they didn't grow up with much. Uh, on my mom's side, my grandfather was a poor missionary who later became a pastor. It's not really lucrative. And then on my dad's side, my grandfather was a poor farmer. And so my, both my parents often saw their own parents my grandparents, go without food for days at a time so that they and their brothers and sisters could eat. So to know that, to understand that, and then to see how my parents' lives have turned out, it's nothing short of amazing. See, they represent everything that we believe about the American dream. And you don't have to be an immigrant to believe in the American dream. To some extent, we've all grown up with this mentality ingrained in us. That if we work hard, if we apply ourselves, if we persevere, then anything is possible. And through the years, I've seen the results of my parents' hard work, their sacrifice. Some 46 years later, they built quite a life for themselves. And my dad is the biggest believer in the American dream. He believes in it because he's lived it. And growing up, he would constantly remind us that if we worked hard, if we gave it our best, if we did everything we could, there was no limit to what we could achieve. And so I grew up with this mindset, along with the knowledge of the sacrifices that my parents had made so that I could have the opportunities that they never had. So between that kind of thinking, along with the natural tendency in my own heart towards pride, I lived much of my life believing that if I just worked hard enough, if I gave it everything I had, there was nothing that I could not achieve. Now, that's not necessarily a bad attitude to have. And please don't get me wrong, I am so grateful for the work ethic that I saw in my parents, that they instilled in me. I would not be the woman I am today if they had not taught me that. But I took that and I internalized it to mean that I had to figure out life on my own, that it was all up to me, that life was about depending on myself, that I could do life in my own strength, with my own resources, by my own wisdom. The problem was, I couldn't. See, I had a sin problem, and no matter how hard I worked, no matter what I did, I could not solve it. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think, 
many of us have tried to do life on our own, in our own strength. And in many ways, we've believed that if we work hard enough, we could make it on our own. Dependence on self is one approach to life that many of us have tried, but there's yet another approach to life. Many of us have also tried depending on others. Now call it what you want, fear of man, people-pleasing. Ultimately, it boils down to replacing God with people. And again, I'm guilty of living this way as well. If you were here last semester, I uh, shared much of my life story uh, with you. But for most of my life, I've struggled with living for the love and approval of people. See, my history is that I was sexually abused at the age of 10 for a period of two years, and I never told anybody, not until many, many years later. And so I tried to live life seeking the love and approval of people. Now, I've got to tell you that God has brought such healing and restoration to my life, but for much of my life, I thought that I needed to find my approval in the love of other people. And so initially, it was my parents. And for my parents, there were two things that were important to them. They wanted me to love Jesus, and they wanted me to do well in school because education was the key to success. So I went after those two things hard. Like, I was awesome at church. And I've said this before. I don't even know how you could be awesome at church because it's not like it's a hobby or a sport. But truly, (laughs) like, I was awesome at it. I owned it. I was in church three or four times a week. I knew the Bible. I memorized large chunks of the Bible. I knew what to say, and I knew how to say it. I was awesome at being a good church kid. And I did fairly well in school. And then later on, it, I sought the love and approval of friends, and being popular and well-liked was important. And then as I grew older, I tried to find it in relationships with men, but no matter what anyone said, no matter what they did, it was never enough. They could never give me what my heart so desperately longed for. And again, I don't think I'm alone in this. Dependence on self and dependence on others are two deadly traps that we get caught in as we try to do life. Now, some of us fall into one, maybe more than the other, but then there's others of us, like myself, where we sort of go between both of them. And neither approach will lead to this rich, satisfying life that Jesus has promised us. And trying to do life with either approach is incredibly exhausting. It's never going to work. So what do we do? How do we avoid these traps? How do we live this abundant life that Jesus has talked about? Well, this morning, we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about that. And what we will find is that if we're serious about following Jesus, if we desire this best possible life that he's talked about, we will never find it by depending on ourselves or by depending on others. Truly living for Jesus requires fully depending on Jesus. So to explore that idea, we're going to look at two scenes from the lowest moment of Peter's life, Peter's denial of Jesus. And we'll examine these two traps, and then we'll look at the secret to this best possible life. Now, I've got to warn you, there's a whole lot of bad news that I'm going to share with you, but there's good news coming, so you've got to stay with me, okay? The good news is only good because of the bad news. So let's take a look at these two scenes that portray for us Peter's denial of Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew 26. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in this chapter, so if you would open your Bibles, 
Matthew 26, scene one is found in verses 31 to 35, and this is scene one, trap one, dependence on self. Matthew 26, 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Jesus and his disciples have just celebrated the Last Supper, this intimate meal where, they, where Jesus proclaims his life and death as the only means of salvation. And they eat and they drink together, and then Jesus tells his disciples that this very night they will abandon him, that they will desert him. And as soon as Jesus says this, Peter protests. And he says, no way, Jesus, even if they all leave you, even if all these guys leave you, I never will. I've got your back, Jesus. You can count on me. And then Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And he says, Peter, this very night, in just a few hours, even before that rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And again, Peter declares his undying loyalty to Jesus. And he says, even if I have to die, Jesus, even if it means my very life, I will never deny you. And all the disciples say the very same thing. And 20 verses later, in verse 56 of this same chapter, we see that all the disciples abandon Jesus. They run for their lives. And maybe Peter led the pack, or at least he was certainly among them. And if we're honest, we'd admit that we're not that different than Peter. Peter had seen a lot. He'd walked with Jesus. He'd talked with Jesus. He'd seen the miracles of Jesus. Peter walked on water. He witnessed the transfiguration. Peter saw Moses and Elijah. He's been around the block once or twice. He thinks he's got this whole thing figured out. And while he set out to follow Jesus, somewhere in the middle of it all, he begins to do life claiming his own strength, as Jody taught us a few weeks ago. See, Peter's a resourceful guy. He knows how to get things done, and he thinks he can do life based on his own resources and in his own wisdom. And we do the same thing. We set out to follow Jesus, but sometimes we begin to rely on ourselves rather than relying on Jesus. We need to make things happen. We need to get things done. We've come up with plans for our life, three-step three step strategies and approaches for getting what we want. We're in control of our lives. Sure, we follow Jesus, but come on, we're the ones in charge. Deep down inside, many of us believe that as William Ernest Henley said in his poem, Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We think we're smart enough, strong enough, resourceful enough, and that if we just work hard enough, we can be successful at making life turn out the way we want. And this is the message that the world sells us. We see it in social media, movies, advertising. We hear it in music. As that great theologian Rihanna says, you just gotta work, 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 work. Now, if you missed that pop culture reference, it's okay, you didn't miss anything, okay? 
Here's my point. We depend on ourselves. And this, this is pride. And God detests pride. The scriptures repeatedly caution us that pride goes before a fall. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says that God opposes the proud, that he stands against the proud, and that's no place that you or I want to be. Depending on yourself will lead to a dead end. It will not work. You and I are not strong enough, resourceful enough, capable enough. Depending on self is a deadly trap that will fail you every single time. And that's what happened to Peter. Peter's greatest failure in life, the denial of his savior, was a result of depending on himself. It was a result of his pride. Trap number one is dependence on self. Let's look at scene two, trap number two dependence on others. So jump down a few paragraphs to verse 69, Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Right before this scene, Jesus has just been arrested in the garden. And as we said earlier, the disciples have fled. They've abandoned him. And he's now at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, in the midst of this sham of a trial. And Peter follows Jesus to Caiaphas's house. And he gets himself into the courtyard, and it's there that he denies Jesus three times. And first, a servant girl tell those, tells those in the courtyard that Peter, Peter had been with Jesus. And Peter denies it, and he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And to avoid the awkwardness of the conversation, to sort of get himself out of that, he retreats to the edge of the crowd, and he goes towards the gateway, where he's confronted yet again by another servant girl. And she says to the people there that Peter was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter denies it with an oath, using God's name to show how serious he is, and he declares, I do not know the man. And after some time, bystanders press Peter even further, and they say, surely you're one of them. You're one of his followers. Your accent gives you away. And Peter begins to call down curses on himself, and he again takes a note, and he's basically saying, may Yahweh curse me if I am not telling the truth. The calling of curses on himself was a legal way of declaring his alleged innocence. And Peter again declares, I do not know the man. Peter does everything he can to prove to people that he does not know or follow Jesus. Now you would think that Peter's accusers are high-ranking officials, maybe a Pharisee or Pilate himself, someone with authority, with power to take Peter's life. But it wasn't. Peter fears a servant girl 
Her gender, her occupation make her fairly low on the social ladder. She's got no power. She's got no authority. But Peter's so afraid of her that he lies not once, but twice. And then even when confronted with the fact that his Galilean accent gives him away as a follower of Jesus, he just keeps lying. That's like if you and I had a conversation and I said words like coffee and chocolate and pecan. And then I try to pretend like I'm not from New Jersey. Like, it doesn't even make sense, but Peter's dug himself into a hole. And he's so afraid for his life that he just keeps lying. He denies Jesus. He's more concerned about what people think than what Jesus thinks of him. Peter's afraid. He's afraid of being exposed, rejected, humiliated. And again, haven't we all acted like Peter one time or another? Haven't we fallen into the trap of depending on or fearing others? And let me explain what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that you should never rely on other people. Of course we should rely on other people. We were created for community and for relationships. And so we were made to need each other. But often we take these good gifts that God has given us, relationships maybe with your husband or your significant other, your children, your friends, your parents, and when you do that, you begin to make them ultimate. And when you do that, you've created an idol. Ed Welch, counselor and author, says that we make people big and we make God small. And instead of worshiping the giver of these gifts, we begin to worship the gifts themselves. We've created an idol the moment we take this relationship and we value this person more than we value God. We begin to think by having this relationship, we will finally be important. We will finally be valued. And we think that this person is more significant, more necessary, more beautiful than God himself. And in that moment, you've given an, an unbelievable amount of authority to whoever this is. It isn't wrong to desire relationships. It's just wrong to believe that this person will give you value and significance because they can't and they won't. This person was never meant to satisfy us and, and they were never meant to bear the weight of all that we're putting on them. They were never meant to be our, our worth and our security. And if we get caught in this trap of depending on others, we will surely fail. So what's the solution? How do we find this life that Jesus talked about, this abundant, overflowing life? How do we avoid these traps of depending on ourselves and depending on others? Well, here's the good news. Thomas Chalmers, a well-known Scottish preacher, said the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. To avoid the traps of depending on ourselves and depending on others, we turn to a more powerful affection, we turn to a more powerful love, we turn to Jesus. See, if you're serious about following Jesus, if you want this best possible life that he came to give us, there's only one way to get it. Truly living for Jesus requires fully depending on Jesus. But how exactly do we do that? It's easy for me to tell you, just depend on Jesus. That's not earth-shattering news to you, right? The question really becomes, how do we do that? How do we fully depend on Jesus? 
Well, I'm glad you asked because I have one action, really just two words, for how we can fully depend on Jesus. And here it is. Fear God. Fear God. Now I say that and that doesn't sound terribly appealing to many of you. Some of you are like, that's pretty old school. What does that even mean? Well, the Bible talks about this again and again from from Old Testament to New Testament. Psalm 110.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what does it mean to fear God? To fear God rightly does not mean that we are afraid of him. Because of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, that we don't have to be afraid. No, to fear God is a good kind of fear. As we understand that God's wrath for our sins was satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross. To fear God means we come to him in awe and reverence. We fear God when we begin to understand who he is, when we we begin to see his character and his ways, when we get a glimpse of his beauty and his greatness. We come to God in fear, this good kind of fear where we, like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, after seeing this vision of God, high and lifted up on his throne, surrounded by the seraphim, each calling one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the very foundations of the temple shake and it's filled with smoke. And Isaiah's only response is awe and reverence. Woe is me, he says, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And this king, this God, reaches out to us in love and gives us his son, Jesus, to reconcile us to himself. And Jesus, the son of God, enters our world as a frail, helpless baby to show us that he has come for the weak, for those who recognize that they are weak, and he saves us not by our work, but by his work. Jesus lays aside the majesty and his power, and he dies to save us. Our king comes not to sit on a throne, but to die on a cross. Jesus takes our place, he pays the penalty that we owed for the rebellious life that we chose to live. So now as we see who this God is, it leads us to stand, it leads us to fall on our knees in awe and reverence. What kind of God is this that he would love us like this? God calls us his daughters. He accepts you more than that, he delights to work in you. In fact, this God is in the business of working through people who are weak and foolish. It's what he does best. We come to God in fear, and we learn to fear God by practicing the five rhythms of a missionary disciple. We grow in our understanding and in our relationship with God as we practice the five rhythms. Here we talk about, a lot about these five rhythms, about scripture, prayer, mission, church, and worship. And we we talk about them because we believe that they're essential to the life of a missionary disciple. That's why Jody's made them this integral part of the study, because they're necessary for us to grow. Dancing with the Stars, I think the season started yesterday. I didn't get to watch it, but I do watch Dancing with the Stars, and if you're not familiar with it, it's a reality TV show. And it pairs up, it's a dance competition, and it pairs up celebrities with professional dancers. Now, I don't watch it a lot, but I like to watch it at the very beginning, 
and then at the very end. Okay, so I watch it at the very beginning, right? Because you get these celebrities who either think that they can dance or who hope that they can learn to dance. But many of them soon discover that they have no rhythm. And watching a couple dance, when one of them has no rhythm, is incredibly painful, right? It's, it's like they're not even doing the same dance. You just want it to stop. It's a train wreck, but you can't help but watch. But then at the end of the season, you get the very best performers. And watching their performance is beautiful. As you watch this couple dance, it, it's almost like they're one. Their movements are so completely aligned, so graceful, so fluid. The five rhythms help us keep step with God. They are gifts from God to help us walk closely with him. Now, there's not just five. It's not an exhaustive list. There are many more spiritual disciplines that are helpful to us, but we've chosen these five as ways to position ourselves in a place where God can transform our lives and where we can be open to God's work in our lives. The rhythms themselves, they don't save us, they don't transform us. Here's what they do. They simply allow us to, allow, to align ourselves with what God wants to do in our lives. As we read and meditate on scripture, as we pray, as we seek to bless others, as we participate in community, and as we worship, we begin to grow in our understanding of who God is, and we see God work in our lives. And the result of fearing God is that we recognize our weakness. Depending on Jesus means we recognize that we are not strong enough, smart enough, or resourceful enough to save ourselves or to live life. As we come to see who God is, as we grow in our fear of God, as we recognize our weakness, we admit that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, that we desperately need him. J.D. Greer, pastor and author, says, if dependence is the objective... Weakness is the advantage. If dependence is the objective, weakness is the advantage. And Paul, in one of his letters to the church at Corinth, said it like this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. Jesus' power, Jesus' strength is seen as we recognize our weakness. Because when you depend on an infinitely strong God, being weak is a very good thing. And the question you've got to ask yourself, if you find yourself falling into these traps of depending on yourself or depending on others, is this. What lie are you believing about God? What lie are you believing about God? Because at the root of every sin, there's a lie that you're believing about God. Whether you realize it or not, that's what's happening. So identify the lie and preach the truth of the gospel to it. Now perhaps... You're depending on yourself because you believe that God is just not gonna come through for you. Maybe you're depending on others because you think you need them more than you need God. Or maybe you're depending on yourself because you you don't really believe that God loves you, that you can trust him with your life. These are lies from the pit of hell that the enemy wants you to believe because he does not want you to fully depend on Jesus. Identify the lie and preach the truth of the gospel to your own heart. See, I've wasted years of my life depending on myself and depending on others. And while I've come a long way in understanding that truly living for Jesus requires fully depending on Jesus, 
there's still times where I go back to my old ways, when I, when I fall into these traps. And when life is going well, it's easy for me to depend on Jesus. But the moment it gets a little difficult, when I start to feel the pressure, I give in to my flesh often, and I go back to my natural way of living, and I start to think, I've got to make it happen. I've got to hustle. I've got to work. And often I treat life like it's a chess game, that if I just make all the right moves, if I think two steps ahead, I can get exactly what I want. And as I was working through this message, the Lord convicted me. That's what I was doing right there when it comes to my next steps for after graduation for my future. I was making all the right moves. I was hustling so that my plans could be successful. And I'm not saying there isn't hard work that I need to do or there isn't effort that I need to make, but a subtle shift, an incredibly subtle shift, had taken place in my heart where I started to believe that it was all up to me. And as I worked through that, the Lord also showed me that I had begun to depend on others, that I had begun to fear others and live for their approval because you know what I was worried about? Here's what I was worried about. I was worried, what would people think? What would all those people think that said I was a fool to quit my career and go to seminary? See, I had to hustle. I had to work because I needed to prove to them that I was important, that I was good enough. And in that moment, God in his graciousness reminded me that I don't. That my identity is in Christ. That I am loved, accepted, forgiven, and free that I don't have to live for anyone's approval except for God's, and with God, I am already approved because of Jesus Christ. Depending on Jesus means that we can run to him no matter what we've done. We have a God who we don't have to be afraid of, who we can come boldly to in the middle of our biggest messes, and when we depend on Jesus, it means he cleans us up. We're not in charge anymore, and can we be honest, we were never in charge in the first place. And we're incapable, completely incapable of cleaning ourselves up. Jesus loves you. Jesus is for you. And he proved that he is worthy of your trust when he died on the cross for your sins. Thomas Chalmers was right. We need to dispossess our hearts of these old affections depending on ourselves and depending on others. And we need to replace them with a more powerful affection. We need to run to Jesus. We need to learn to fear God. Because only as we see God rightly will we see ourselves and others rightly. And that's what I had to do. That's what I will have to do for the rest of my life because I know I am prone to sin in this way. It's why I need the five rhythms. They help me grow in my relationship with God. They remind me of who he is and who I am. They help me remember that I am weak but that he is infinitely strong. Depending on ourselves and others is complete and utter foolishness, and it's incredibly exhausting. As we begin to fear God, as we see his beauty and his majesty, his graciousness, we will realize that he is all that we have ever really needed, and the wisest move we could make is to fully depend on Jesus. I went back to New Jersey over spring break just for a quick weekend trip and I got to spend a, a good amount of time with my dad and I was working on this message so I shared, I shared it with him and I asked him, do you still believe in the American dream? And here's what he said to me, he said, of course I do, look at my life, look at your life, of course I believe in the American dream. 
But there's a far better way than the American dream. There's the way of Jesus. And he said, don't you ever think that we achieved anything because of our hard work or because of our strength. We were given everything by a gracious God who gives good gifts to his children. And then he said, I hope that you've learned to fully depend on Jesus, that you've seen that in our lives. And so now, as I look back on the legacy of my family, I see it quite differently now. I see that from generation to generation, he has been a faithful God. Who are you depending on? Are you depending on yourself? Are you depending on others? Or are you fully depending on Jesus? Are there places in your life where you are looking to yourself, to to your own strength, or looking to others for the love and approval that you can only receive from Jesus? What are the lies that you're believing about God that drive you to depend on yourself or others? And maybe you're like me. Maybe you've wasted years of your life falling into these traps. Here's the beauty of the gospel. It's never too late. The prophet Joel says that we have a God who can redeem and restore the years that the locusts have eaten. It's what he does best. Tim Keller says that unless we believe the gospel, everything we do will be driven by pride, dependence on ourselves, or by fear, dependence on others. Recognize that you are weak, but that he is infinitely strong. Identify the lies and preach the gospel to your own heart. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've never actually put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you've been trying to do life on your own, or you've been looking to others. Take this opportunity to turn from your sin, from these lesser things, and to turn to Jesus, to fully depend on Jesus. Just a few chapters earlier from what we read before in in, uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says this, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely. Jesus invites you. Run to him. Fully depend on him. Aren't you tired of trying to live life on your own or looking to others when it never works? If I could plead with you for one thing, it would be to not live like this. You don't have to. There's a better way. It's the way of Jesus. Truly living for Jesus requires fully depending on Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we come before you And we're so grateful that you are such a good father to us, that you have set your affections on us, that you have called us your daughters, and that you accept and that you delight in us. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for every woman here. Would you help us to examine our hearts and our lives? And if there are places where we have depended on ourselves or on others, would you help us to see that and then help us to turn to Jesus, to fully depend on Jesus? And God, would you give us a greater vision of who you are? Because only as we see you rightly will we see ourselves and others rightly.
We ask this for your glory and our good. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.